Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing Playmobil, the movie, as well as Dark Waters about the lawsuit raised against DuPont for the poisoning of Parkersburg, West Virginia, uh, Queen and Slim, the uh, the uh, Black Bonnie and Clyde, as it were, the independent movie starring Daniel Kaluuya, uh, The Good Liar, which is the sort of um, thriller starring Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren about the uh, old con artist, and then Playing With Fire, the uh, latest Nickelodeon live-action movie starring John Cena as a smoke jumper. Huh. We'll get into it, but uh, let's get this thing started. Wait, Rex! I know! You love me! You don't need to say it! Jump with an Aston, jump in the world! Um, I was... Just gonna say you forgot your sunglasses. I love that dive! <laughs> Tell the boss Dell's here to see her. I got Adele down here asking to see Miss G. No, not Adele. That would be awesome. <laughs> I've been going through the old uh, Spell.com reviews, and one of them comes to mind when I, um, when I think of this movie. It's the one for Vampires Suck. It's the, uh, it's a quick shot of Corey, uh, looking straight into the camera and saying, F you. And it's not as bad as Vampires Suck, I'm gonna say that much. Even having not seen Vampires Suck, I can say that Playmobil is better than it. In at least the animators on Playmobil gave more of a, of a shit than, um, the makers of Vampires Suck. But at the same point, this is this when it was announced was very clearly a Lego Movie uh, copycat. It was Playmobil hoping to make any semblance of the money from uh, a movie that Lego did using the um, the Warner Brothers style animated movies. And that's the thing is, the people who made the Lego movies knew exactly how to utilize Legos in making a movie about Legos. Like, you could always tell that they're commercials for Lego. Like, they, you cannot escape that fact, but the stories that they're telling are still good. And the story for the first Lego movie is still good. The story for the second Lego movie, even, even though the movie itself is kind of jumbled, the story is still decent. The story for Playmobil, the movie, feels like somebody saw the Lego movie and wanted to trace over it. Like, don't do, don't copy it to the point where we can tell it's a blatant copycat, but copy just enough so that we can try and ride the coattails a bit. Really. Uh, the premise here is Anya Taylor-Joy, um, the love interest, apparently, of, um, the, of, uh, the, uh, James Mac I forgot his name for a second. James McAvoy's character in Split. Um yeah, yeah, spoilers for Glass. Apparently she becomes a love interest. Uh anyway, she's been kind of having a her uh glow up, as it were. Uh she's about to be in the Emma adaptation with uh, Bill Nighy. And uh she's the older sister of this movie, and she's got a pa her big thing at the beginning of this movie is I got a passport, and that means I can go on adventures. N not mentioning how exactly she plans to pay for these adventures, but she's gonna go away from home and have adventures, and then she and her brother play Playmobile. Her brother is, by the way, like uh, I wanna say eight. Nine. I don't think anybody over the age of six still plays with Playmobil. Lego! That's, that's the thing. Lego you can do so many things with. Playmobil always felt like it was geared towards much younger kids. I can't imagine anybody approaching double digits still playing with Playmobil. But, um... But yeah, they play with the Playmobil set, and then tragedy strikes. <laughs> um, because it's that kind of movie... And I won't say what, but you can probably guesstimate what. And then it turned. And then um, Anya Taylor Joy has to help raise. Well, there it is. Um, there's the spoiler already. <laughs> the, they pull a Bambi in the first in like the first ten minutes. It's like, oh no, oh no, the parents are dead. And now, and um, 
I don't mind spoiling it because there's not a way, not any way in hell any of you people should be seeing the Playmobil movie if you have any choice in the matter. Um, but yeah, Anya Taylor-Joy then takes over raising her brother and the plot as, it's, as it was begins when she, uh, when the brother runs away from home because his sister's no fun anymore and she used to play with him and it's like we don't even know what this chick does for a, a for a job but she's the one paying the bills it's one of those stories speaking of spill um remember um uh martin uh when he when he was leon and i think it's carried over since he's moved to double toasted absolutely hates these premises the ones that my daddy worked, my parents worked too hard. They don't have enough time for me. Me, 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 me. <laughs> oh, God. Like, I think it's just because I've gotten, I don't think I, I even, I don't think I ever liked those premises as a kid. Like, even as a kid, I was, <laughs> I was never like, oh, poor baby. You're, I, like, I was never um cognizant enough to re recognize that the parents have to work to make money and for you to have the nice things that you have but i never cared that the bratty kid parents never had time for him because like i don't i don't want to spend any time with you why would your parents ever want to spend any time with you if this is how you act so uh, it's only since I've become an adult that I've come to recognize how bullshit that whole premise is. And it just absolutely, I, the fact that we're doing this in the year of our Lord 2019 is still mind boggling. <laughs> uh, but yes, but yeah, so they they end up in a toy convention hall set where there's an entire Playmobil setup. And for magic reason, stupid magic reasons, the brother's Playmobil Viking um, becomes real, and the two of them get transported to Playmobil Land. And they get separated, and she has to go rescue him, and he is a superhero, he's got super strength and whatnot, and he gets uh, kidnapped to take part in some sort of gladiatorial combat Neither of these things are really well established. They're just kind of base. They're base. They basically they basically decided that because like their kids, like the kid, like the four year olds playing with Playmobil still, none of them will care about plot. <laughs> uh, and so Anya Taylor Joy's character goes through various Playmobil sets uh, with Jim Gaffigan of all people uh, in a food truck to try and rescue her brother, and. Um, then the main villain is like some Roman emperor sort of character. By the way, this this movie has songs, and the songs are absolutely unlistenable. If you want good, like uh, crimes against humanity level torture songs, I would play the soundtrack to the Playmobil movie because that absolutely is a crime against humanity. <laughs> and nobody in the movie knows how to sing. Nobody, the only person who knows how to sing is Megan Trainer, and that's the only reason she was even cast in the movie, and her song is still garbage. And her song is even worse than her actual, like, officially released songs as Megan Trainer. <laughs> oh, God. And I think the big, th the big th thing with me is that the animation is, is, isn't bad, but it doesn't make up for the fact that this story is garbage and the fact that they try to play up the oh Anya Taylor-Joy just has to learn to have fun again it's like no she wasn't wrong she was never in the wrong her brother is the little douchebag who ran away from home because sister doesn't play with anymore because somebody's gotta pay the bills just talking about this movie is giving me a migraine I think that's about as much as I can really say on the subject. Um, it's stupid. It is insulting to the intelligence of the viewer. It plays up a trope that was terrible when it first came out in like the 80s. And the fact that we're still doing it 
in all, when we're almost at the year 2020 is is baffling. And not to mention the fact that um, just everything about this movie is insufferable. This is worst of the year material by far. So <laughs> uh, if you want, if you really hate yourself or you want to make somebody suffer, have, give them a copy of the Playmobil, Playmobil movie when it comes out because woof. Yeah. Oh, by the way, like all terrible movies, it ends on sequel bait. Because of course it does. Last last on us because that movie is considered one of the worst bombs in history now. Not you know not not the not the worst bomb, but top five for sure. So there, uh, you gotta love that that kind of instant karma. He was willing to risk his job, his family, for a stranger who needed his help. The system is rigged. They want us to think it'll protect us. We protect us. We do. I was actually not familiar with this uh, story when it came out. Um, this has been an ongoing thing for like 20 years. Uh, it started in 1998, so it's been 22 years almost since it started. But And it's been ongoing even longer than that. Um... But yeah, basically, uh, DuPont, who is much more notorious now for just being the worst of the worst when it comes to corporate greed and scumbaggery, um, was still considered, you know, fairly reputable and a true titan of American business and whatnot. And it was because of the actions of this guy, uh, Billet, um, I forget what his first name is, um, but yeah, uh, Mark... Ruffalo's characters, um, this uh, lawyer from Cincinnati, and he works for uh, Taft, which, which, um, well, the first name I recognized was Taft, um, and uh, I'm trying to think of the, because if, if I'm not mistaken, then that means that he worked for a descendant of former President of the United States and Supreme Court Justice um, William Howard Taft. In fact, I, I'm looking this up right now. Taft, Stettinus, and Hollister, yes. Um, and da 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 Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, and Delaware, Ohio, Chicago, Indianapolis, Covington, and Phoenix. Um, headed by Robert A. Taft, sons of former President William Howard Taft. The Tafts are big, de big deals in Ohio. We had a governor who was, uh, who was like the grandson of William Howard Taft. Tafts have big pull over in our neck of the woods. Um, but yeah, uh, Robert Billet, uh, Mark Ruffalo's character, is a, is a new partner at, uh, Taft, um, Stettinus and Hollister, and... He's a corporate lawyer. He he argues for companies like DuPont. And one day, these two farmers come to his office with a uh, a cardboard box full of videotapes asking him to take their case. And basically saying that... It turns out that his grandmother lives in Parkersburg, West Virginia. She knows tangentially this guy. And the guy came to him because nobody in West Virginia will take his case. And he's got basically saying he's got proof that DuPont has been poisoning um, uh, the water and the and the land around his farm because his cattle are dying. He's got video evidence. He's got physical evidence of all these these things that are happening to his cattle that is not natural. And the mo and at first, Billet is hesitant. He doesn't really want to get into this. He thinks he's that's way out of. He's a corporate lawyer. He's not a plaintiff lawyer. He's not. You know, he doesn't. You know, go after like. You know. Uh, civil suits. He's he's, um, but um, when this guy um came to once uh Billet started researching what's been going on, he was like at first he's like, look, I'll talk to Dupont, I'll find out what's going on, and the next thing he knows, Dupont's not um uh, the rep the uh, representative from Dupont isn't getting back to him, and when he tries to dig deeper, he's getting railroaded, and he's and like I don't know if it happened like it does in the movie, but basically. Uh, in the movie, oh, God, what's the guy's name? 
Um, I forget the actor's... Um, let me pull up the actor's name. Um, is it Victor Garber? Victor Garber, who is best known for... Oh, my God! He was in, uh, he was in uh, Sweeney Todd. He played John Wilkes Booth in Assassins. He's a... He's a he was Jesus in the, one of the run, I think the initial run of Godspell. Um, people might know him best as Thomas Andrews in Titanic, and he was also the Canadian ambassador in Argo. Oh, he's Doctor Martin Steen uh, uh, in Legends of Tomorrow and The Flash. So that's kind of where he he's at. That's kind of how. Oh, he was in the movie Godspell. Okay, okay, neat. So, um, yeah, and then, um, oh, he was a Klingon interrogate. Uh, but yeah, this, this guy's been around, um, and he basically tells, um, Billet straight up, look, if you want, if you want it so bad, then you can sue me. You know, first it's like, look, we're just doing this discovery to kind of figure out what's going on. Like, if maybe there's something, like, he's giving, uh, DuPont the biggest benefit of the doubt. And the next thing he knows, DuPont is like, coming at him like he like he like he's threatening like he's threatening like he like they're gum they're, all of a sudden it goes from amicable to just adam just full-on like hateful animosity uh towards him just for even mentioning it and just like well that means something that mean, that's like a big giveaway that something's up here he would not be this he would not like me asking what's going on with the deposit you know with this stuff look you know he's just trying to figure out what's going on next thing he knows he's being yelled at for for daring to ask dupont um about about uh discovery um information and finding out what exactly is going on in that uh in this landfill that's right next to this guy's property and then it becomes just an absolute legal war between um Billet and DuPont. And as Billet is going through the discovery and looking into what's been going on, he gets railroaded with like this entire room full of paperwork, which is, um, I forget what the terminology is, but, um, yeah, companies will do that all the time for people, tr people suing them. They'll just dump them. It used to be bigger in before the digital age. Um, it's, it's a lot less common now because everything's digital. But yeah, back in the day, the you know big companies would just bury you in paperwork, thinking you'll give up. And Bill had dug through all the paperwork and came to find out that oh, this thing that that they use to make Teflon, it it uh it it can it can kill you. It's carcinogenic, and nobody's doing anything about it. And the movie then becomes Billet's battle with Dupont in order for them in order to get you know in order for them to acknowledge and pay for the damages that they've done. First with um, the uh, farmer who came to him, Wilbur Tennant, and then eventually on to uh, uh, Kiger, the Kiger the family. Uh, Darlene Kiger um, is the wife. I forget what the husband's name is. But um, yeah, just the, you know, these people in West Virginia. And meanwhile, these, plaintiff, these uh, plaintiffs in West Virginia that are bringing up this information, all of a sudden they become like town pariahs for daring to speak out against DuPont Chemical. As a like Dupont as above reproach, you know how dare you attack the innocent? You know it's like oh you poor sweet summer children, you have absolutely no idea, do you? And yeah, it took almost it took at least twelve years, I think. Wait, no, they, I think they finally came out. It took fourteen years for it finally to be conclusive that Dupont's actively dumping of the. Um, of their chemicals that are used to make Teflon in uh, West Virginia, in the West Virginia landfill, caused irreparable damage to um, the citizens there. And then, as soon as that was, yeah, as soon as it was figured out, guess what Dupont did? They're a skeezy corporation. Get you can probably figure out what they did. And yeah, it's um, it's a it's this really compelling legal drama, and it's all mostly about the one phase of um, legal proceedings that almost never gets talked about, discovery. Um, I've been getting into uh, Legal Eagle over on YouTube, and DJ has kind of 
often talk whenever he talks about lawyer uh, law practice in the media, they often cut to the trial, and it never. And the thing is, most cases don't go to trial. Most of them are done through discovery, and then the trial is just the end of the you know the end of the road if nothing else happens. We're so you know we're so raised on like the courtroom dramas that we don't that most people who go actually go into practice law it's like oh no most of this stuff is done through discovery and then uh settled out of court <laughs> like most of the times we don't even go into a courtroom before a judge um but yeah most of this the majority of this movie is um billet's discovery process learning what exactly dupont was doing and and then as it pick once he figures that out then it's him actually trying to get DuPont to take responsibility for what they've done. And every hurdle he's forced to jump over and the, the physical uh, toll it eventually takes on him. I will say that this movie does get preachy. I think that's his biggest problem is that it already has picked a side. I mean, it's the side of humanity, but it lays on thick how bad DuPont is. Without just letting the facts speak for themselves, it loves to lay on thick how, like, there's a whole thing where Ruffalo screams about how the system is rigged. And it's like, yeah, we're watching the movie, dude. So, I mean, <laughs> I think it's just, there's a thing in Hollywood where they love to just overemphasize the point, And it's, they just can't let it things speak for themselves. Subtlety is a, is a, very, is a very uncommon thing art in in hollywood uh cinema and um i think this movie could have done with with some more subtlety just let things speak for themselves and not try to over emote and then the other problem i really had with this was anne hathaway um uh, sarah billet uh her character is weirdly all over the place there's not really an arc for her it's she's almost kind of superfluous to the plot she's like there out of necessity just because he was married and she did play a role in his personal life between the cases. But her arc is, her character arc is all over the place. First, you know, part of it's like supportive and then part of it's like she thinks she's, he's crazy. And the next thing you know, she's yelling at him for not, for focusing too much on the case. And then next thing, she, next thing you know, she's arguing with his boss, Tim Robbins, about not getting enough respect at work. And then it's like... Where, where is this woman's, like, per, like, what is, what are we trying to say? Like, I know, I don't know if there, it was just that, I don't know how Sarah Billet personally, I don't know her personal journey throughout this whole thing, because most of it is focused on Rob. Um, so I don't know how much of Sarah's life is portrayed accurately on screen, but she is just, her, the writing for her is just all over the place. Like, they have no idea how to write her. To really make her uh, part of it, she comes down to West Virginia as part of the discovery. So, like, is she helping Rob with all of this? What is what are we doing with this character exactly? And I don't think the movie really has an idea of what they want to do with her with um, her as a character. And I think that kind of um, kind of dings it a bit, just because um, it feels like she has no reason to be there. And they don't really know what to do with her uh, when she's there. So I think they could have easily, you know, a better writer could have handled Rob's personal life and his family dr troubles during the course of this whole thing. But whoever handled the writing for this never really got the hang of it. I, I don't know. Um, Michael Car Matthew Carnahan is one of the writers. The other one... I have to look up, but, oh, oh, buddy. Yeah, Matthew Carnahan wrote, co-wrote 21 Bridges and Deepwater Horizon. Oof, yeah, not exactly great stuff there. Um, what about the other guy, Mario Correa? He's best known for nothing. Uh, he was a creative consultant on a documentary uh, called Electoral Dysfunction by Mo Rocca. Uh, so yeah, this is a first time screenwriter and a guy who co-wrote, uh, World War, the World War Z movie. <sighs> yep. So yeah, it's, um, 
I think better hand, having better there could there's definitely writers who could have handled this material better, especially since they try to play up the idea that Dupont might be committing like vote you know, like um witness intimidation and these sort of tactics. Like there's a whole bit where um and like maybe they're suggest like they mention like most of the time um Billet's right, but they I think they're trying to play him as going he's getting paranoid and thinking that they're out to get him. Once again, these could have been interesting topics, but I feel like the writing just isn't there. So it's not the best kind of movie to ha- that handles this topic. But at the same point, you know, these are you know, this isn't a bad movie either. It's um, yeah. The, apparently, uh, who the heck Wonderstruck? Okay, yeah, I remember hearing about that Wonderstruck. Okay, uh, I'm looking at the director Todd Haynes. Um, Oh, he did. Uh, he also did Carol from a couple years back, the one with uh, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. I think that was a lesbian thing. Am I not mistaken? Uh, I'm not. He also did I'm Not There, the Bob Dylan um, movie, Far from Heaven, Velvet Goldmine. Huh. Uh, so yeah, this guy's not known for a lot of stuff, really. Um, you know, not a lot. Not a lot of big stuff. He's kind of. Off and on director. Uh, I think he's more like in the music scene because like one of his first short films was a thing about Karen Carpenter and using Barbie dolls. Woof. So apparently that was a thing. Uh, but yeah, it's um, considered a pioneer of new queer cinema of the early 90s. Okay. Um, but yeah, so this... He, I, I think so. Maybe that's another thing too. Uh, Haynes may not be big on like true life legal dramas. He may be best better suited to like character studies. But then this isn't really a good character study from the writing. So it's kind of a mishmash. So I don't know if there. But at the same point, like the movie is not bad. It's just it could be better. Um, so yeah, uh, it's it's a really solid film. Uh, if you want something depressing to remind you that oh yeah. We're all screwed. Um, dark, but at the same, but still gives you a glimmer of hope. Um, by the end, uh, I, I would recommend this movie. It's definitely going to be one of those awards uh, series contenders at the beginning of next year. Um, but uh, but it, you know, it's not amazing either. It more, I, it's more than anything going to get like act, uh, Mark Ruffalo an acting nomination, maybe uh, Tim Robbins for supporting, or Victor Garber, uh, or Bill Camp. Uh, Bill Camp. Uh, plays Wilbur Tennant. He's best known for uh, he was in 12 Years a Slave, Lincoln, Red Sparrow. Uh, who is he in Vice? Uh, Gerald Ford. Okay. Apparently he played Gerald Ford in Vice. I don't even remember Gerald Ford. Um, Justin Joker as well. He's uh, been in a bunch of stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know if he'll get him in, but I think he did amazing in this as well. Uh he was amazing as um, Wilbur Tennant. He kind of really captured this guy's desperation. Um, and you think you, at first you think, ah, oh, it's just some you know uh, hick in the in the you know Appala- you know some Appalachian hill rod. But no, this guy is a really compelling and interesting character. And they never really you know get, they never really like the sh- uh shit on him or anything like that you know they don't uh mistreat him or misrepresent him or anything i think they did a good job uh portraying a character as like um you know f- you know he's a rural farmer obviously he's not like a uh, brain trust or anything like that but he's a, a good honest man who's just at the end of his rope and i think bill camp does an amazing job with him uh so yeah uh dark waters it's good uh definitely the best thing i saw this week so Take, make that of it what you will. I'm tired of playing the safe. I want to ride or die. As long as my lady remembers me fondly, it's all I need. Thank you for this journey, no matter how it ends. The first thing I remember really being said about this movie outside of me watching the trailer was I follow um, Jordan Searles, who's a writer for Bitch 
I believe it, I don't know if it's a magazine or a blog, but Bitch Media. Uh, she's a film critic and a screenwriter in her own right, and I follow her on Twitter, and she's an amazing follow. Highly recommend, uh, I think it's J-O-U-R-D-A-Y-N-E on Twitter. Let me see. But um, basically, she's been going through a lot of um, the decades of black cinema, and as this movie was starting to get release buzz, she actually um, went uh, read through the script and um, compared it to the to the final release, uh, and apparently the the uh, sc- the uh, the script is a- is actually worse than the final product. So make of that what you. But that's just her. That was her opinion about it. Okay, that I missed. Uh, I missed an e. J o u r d a y e n on Twitter. Uh, she's an amazing follow. Highly recommend. Um, but that's the kind of the first word I've been hearing about um, Queen and Slim after it was after other than just seeing the trailer and being like, oh yeah, I kind of want to see this because that's the thing is this past decade has been good to get into film. Uh, because you're seeing a, we're seeing a rise in black cinema reaching the mainstream. Like black cinema never went anywhere, you know. As long as there have been black people getting their hands on uh, cameras and making movies, then there's black been black cinema. But it ebbs and flows in terms of mainstream sort of um, relevance and um, like showcase being showcased. Like it was big in the in the like early '90s with um, Mario Van Peebles and, um, John, oh God, I can't remember his name. Um, Boys in the Hood, he, he recently passed away. Um, crap, uh, oh God, um, crap, what's gonna bug me? Uh, John something, John, 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 Singleton. I don't know why I couldn't remember. John Singleton um, and Spike Lee, of course, gaining some prominence over the 80s and then reaching kind of uh, his most, you know, his biggest release with uh, Do the Right Thing. Uh, but yeah, so the 90s saw a big surge in black cinema re- in mainstream movie releases. And that kind of never kind of be- ebbed a bit. And then it was much more of a niche thing. And now we're seeing a much bigger resurgence with things like the Hate You Give, Sorry to Bother You, um, Moonlight, of course, you know, and then um, Roman J. Israel Esquire, um, not a black filmmaker, but um, um, but a black story. So there's much, we're seeing a rise in, another rise in black cinemas, black uh, movies centered on black characters, on black issues. And it's been a really good time for um, black stories to be told. You know, and even if you don't like everything that's come out, the, the fact that there's a bigger prominence again in um, cinema, in you know, in the movie theaters, that there's this resurgence in blacks and you know, basically non-white stories is a good thing. You know, anytime we can get a chance to have stories that you may never have been told before and bring to light like black queer stories, yeah, yeah, you you get, you get what I'm saying. This is a good thing. And Queen and Slim is the latest entry in this sort of resurgence in um, black cinema returning to um, the uh, spotlight. And um, I was interested because I like the premise, the idea that there's the there's this uh, black couple who has to go on the run after a, a run-in with the police. And then I started hearing, you know, I follow Jordan, so I heard, she, you know, I followed her coverage on it as she was reviewing it and kind of getting into the meat of the, of the film and like going into like the guts of the filmmaking process about it. And I was started, I was a bit worried and then I finally saw it. And suffice to say, all that lead up was to a boring, boring movie. <sighs> Sad to say, but yeah, um, I agree with uh, Jordan on this. This isn't a very good movie. I don't think it's terrible. I think the problem with this movie re- lies strictly in its pacing. Uh, well, for, and it's writing 
first and foremost, because apparently that script is awful. And um, from what I hear, I should specify, I don't know um, if it's awful from firsthand experience, but the, you know, the story, I mean, I could imagine it because the story here is very jumbled. Like, it definitely wants to try and be a commentary on police brutality and, um, you know, issue black a lot of black issues, specifically urban black issues. And yet, it never really has a point. It just kind of motifs. You know, it's... There's no real depth to it. It's all, like, visually representing these things. It never really has the heft behind it. Um, I will say Daniel Kaluuya is, is fine, and so is um, the newcomer. I don't know her name. Uh, Jody Turner-Smith. I think she does... I think they do fine with what they're given. The problem is what they're given is not very good. Um, like, I think, I don't know if this was intended, but the way Queen is written, and that's their names, uh, they don't give them actual names, they're just Queen and Slim, um, which is, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, um, I'm always going to be, I'm a writer by, um, by, by training and by, uh, like, personality. My big thing is, if you don't give this person a name, I just think you're lazy, I've never been big on movies that refuse that uh, uh, that just give a character a random trait name and not an actual character backstory name. Like give them a name for God's sake, you lazy. So, you know, like I don't know. That's just me. I've always been like, you can't be bothered to just give them a name. They don't even have to say it in the script. Just. So we know they have a name. You put thought into naming this person when you brought them into existence. That's all I'm asking. But yeah, um, Queen in this, and I don't know if this is intentional or not. She comes off as very abrasive for no particular reason. And I can't tell if that was the director, the writer, both. Or just happenstance, because it could be the writer and the director was doing their best to kind of, you know, eat, you know, not have her portrayed as much. It could be the director wanting to amp up that uh, portrayal, or it could be both. They, she could have been written that to be that abrasive, and the director just uh, leaned into it. Or it could be a case where, you know, it wasn't intended to be sort of this harsh character that was argumentative and unlikable for for lack of a better word um like she's just so weirdly confrontational over just little th and it's like weird like arguments for no reason and um i'm guessing they're trying to be like oh well it's a stressful situation and and she feels a lot of the stress and it's like her personality makes her come off as weirdly well number for one thing she comes off as weirdly judgmental and weirdly like just just antagonistic towards this guy who is just a, a laid back might as well be like a stoner caricature um just like yeah what you know it's like uh he like like he could just as easily have been like a matthew mcconaughey kind of character the way it's played out except that he's black you know the character is is written around being black but um it just, it just feels like, and also not, not to mention the fact that, once again, these two are not terrible actors. We've seen Daniel Kaluuya be an amazing actor in Get Out, but they are so wooden and deadpan in this. You almost, you very rarely get to see them like do real emotions and like real acting like. Like, it's everything's just, and it's like, it's not even just like the naturalistic sort of, these are people talking to each other. It's like, it's like almost mumblecore. And I think that's, it's, it's, um, just inherent within the style of like the quote unquote indie movie. You see a lot of, this is my problem with Lady Bird too, where it's just like too quiet and slow. 
as this is this weird style of filmmaking in indie movies specifically, like indie as a genre. And I this part of the reason why I don't like indie and you know bordering on art house movies, just because it feels like we're being slow and quiet and just not even barely even existing at some points. Like this is a movie that's supposed to be about righteous black anger at an establishment that doesn't treat you like that treats you as subhuman and at no point does it ever feel that like the hate you give which i it's gonna i'm gonna be it's gonna be very weird to revisit it and see if i like it two years later but um at least that understood the righteous fury that that you know the black community feels being you know at this and it's not only at this point in time but through generations and this movie, it mentions it. it. It it's all surface level, but you never feel it. I don't. I never felt anything watching this movie because everyone fe- didn't feel like a real person. They felt like a symbol of a of a of a just a of a of what you expect of like you know the criminal black black uncle or something like that or the or you know various personalities that you may know. And nobody feels like a real person. They feel like like stand-ins for people. And I'm not going to lie. A lot of the time, since I was like the only person in the movie, it, um, it, I pulled out my phone because I was that bored trying to watch it. And uh, like the only thing I can really give this movie like some you know, mention other than the fact that it's you know, a much more boring take on uh, black issues uh, is that um, there's this weird juxtaposition where they had two characters, Queen and Slim, are having sex while a protest is going on uh, for the against the police um, in their honor, in their like name. They're protesting in in uh, you know for Queen and Slim against the police, and it's like this completely weird and no like like what is the meaning behind this other than to just be weird you know it's one of those things so it's it's not terrible it's not a bad movie it's just it promises more than it can actually deliver and uh, apparently um talking bad about this movie on twitter will get you some really nasty comments so it's going to be fun finding out if people actually listen to this, so I'm sorry. Just not my thing, man. You'd never imagined secrets between you, God, the devil, and the dead. You don't know him! I'm debating between going uh, by Good Liar or playing with Fire first because I, I don't know if I want to end on a good note or a bad note. But I but hey, this is the the order I decided, so we'll go we'll end on a bad note. Next up, the Good Liar. I just came out of this today uh, as of recording this on December eighth, twenty nineteen, and it's apparently based on a book. And I wonder if the book de- tells the story better. Because what I got was a fair... Like, Queen and Slim is just brutally, like, slow and almost, like, just too quiet for its own good. This movie doesn't suffer from that so much as just being not... Like, the, the thing is with thrillers, which this is. This is a thriller about a uh, con artist... Uh, uh, trying to take on the, his latest mark and the whole journey he goes through trying to get uh, trying to grift this woman. And it's a thriller, and yet at no point did I ever feel tension. Like it was more like I was more like admiring it like a painting in a gallery more than I was feeling the tension. Like when you watch the girl with the dragon tattoo, both the American and the uh, Norwegian versions, you feel the tension as they're going through this mystery. You feel that, like, something could pop at any moment. 
uh, or um, Knives Out. It's more of a comedy, but you still feel that tension as, you know, you're waiting for the truth to drop like a bomb and just leave everything in its wake. Here, you never really feel that tension. The trailer promises something a, something way more tense than what we get. What we get here is just mainly a sort of um, languid, sort of slow-moving, almost character study of um, this guy who they reveal has like some weird backstory about, involving World War II and Nazi hunting, and it's like what's really going on and then when they finally reveal what actually it what the real plot of the movie is it just comes right the hell out of nowhere like what the hell just happened when did we become this movie and yeah it just it suffers a lot from just not really knowing how to make that tension work for them and it's just sort of like going through the motions and that's why i wonder if the book does it any better because what we got with the movie i mean the parts where ian mckellen and helen mirren are going off each other are fine they're great because those two are amazing actors and they have great chemistry but it's got weird like it feels so weird the places it tries to go and then the final the prestige as it was the big reveal just comes right the hell out of nowhere. Like they, they, they try to act like, oh, don't be, don't act like you didn't know this whole time. But the character might have known. We, the audience, have no idea what the hell is going on. Movie, that's your job to kind of let us in on. That's what makes a good mystery when we can piece what's going on. If you leave out whole swaths of information from us, no wonder we can't figure out the mystery. You didn't tell us all the clues, so. I think it does, and I don't know, once again, the book may be, may be better at this. The book may be actually worse. You can never tell with some of these books. But, yeah, it's, it's the two playing off each other, it's, it's worth a watch. Like, I'll say it's not terrible to the point where you shouldn't watch it. Helen Mirren and Ian McKellen going tete-a-tete uh, -tete is, is phenomenal. It's the main reason to watch this movie. It's also kind of the only reason to watch this movie because the plot and the pacing are just kind of not really there. They never really make it worth your while to watch. So that's why it's one of those things where like if you caught it on like HBO or um, I don't know, like TNT, you know, later on, it was on Netflix and it's like, ah, I'll give this a shot. You know, I don't, it's something that you shouldn't have to rush out and see because you're not going to get anything out of it. You get more out of Knives Out than you do this movie. And I think that's the kind of missed opportunity is that you could have two amazing tense thrillers out at the same time. And instead you've got a kind of boring, um, weird, and then boring movie with a weird like prestige re reveal twist at the end. And then you've got a genuinely well-written and well-executed thriller mystery. Uh, with nines out so yeah the good liar um the only good liar was the trailer and the marketing to make me think this was a better movie than it was so nothing against the movie just a lot of wasted potential ultimately what a rush boom bow Boom Boom, what's Boom Boom? Don't look at me. Don't, don't do it or I'm gonna... This film is not yet rated. I don't know how often I end on a bad movie, but um, yeah, we're ending on a really bad movie. Um, not as bad as Playmobil, oddly enough. So it's got that going for it. But um, yeah, this is another live-action Nickelodeon movie. And... Just, just, no, please, let's not. Um, the premise here is three kids are rescued by this mountain uh, fire department that handles forest fires, smoke jumpers, which I remember, I think, being a thing in that uh, one with Dennis Quaid, that firefighter movie with Dennis Quaid that I reviewed, I think, last year. And um, then here it's like, 
all, all of it is weirdly comical. And so they're playing like, oh, silly slapstick with actual fire and like top caustic chemicals. And like this, this is not a thing for uh, silly slapstick. Like, hey, I've got Nerf guns as though like flare, like as though like a kid couldn't notice the difference between a flare gun and a Nerf gun. Uh, I don't like once again, the kids in this movie are absolutely stupid. And that's to the movie's detriment that they're this stupid. Um, it, it really does feel like we're nobody in this movie is above a, you know, is above a uh, eighth grade comprehension level and education. Just like absolutely in, insanity with 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 these so-called adults and it's, and it's like it's that and once again this is a writing that is apparent in like wacky kids comedies because you get this all the time on disney channel and nickelodeon with their live action stuff it's always like wackity schmackity do ha like as though they everyone they're they're trying to write as though like they're what they're trying to write for are idiots and like kids are kids it can enjoy much smarter things kids are not complete idiots they're not, they're not the best deciders of taste, but they're not idiots either. You have to give them something to work with. And this movie just doesn't really have that much to work with other than John Cena. I think that's all this movie has going for it, is that John Cena is a charming uh, muscle man. You know, I, I, he's not as... I, I don't know. I kind of like Dave Bautista a bit more, but John Cena, I think John Cena has found his niche with kitschy kids movies. I think he was doomed when he decided to do the three Fred movies. And that's kind of the niche he ended up in. I think he's capable of being more than that, but he hasn't really found, um, you know, that, that, that project to really elevate him above that. I, I think he, I think that's the thing is that he, um, I mean, he's one of, he, I think he's the, most um, requested and prominent celebrity to do Make-A-Wish stuff. So, like, he, as, like, you know, John Cena, friend to the children, um, he's found his niche. And if he's making movies for those for that audience, good for him. I, I just feel like you can do better. Like, once again, I, this is one of those things where it's, like, you get the feeling that it was more fun to make then it was fun to watch because, you know, they ended with uh, blooper reels and like they look like they're having all kinds of fun on set. But having fun on set does not equate to having fun in the theater. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people making movies, especially comedies, don't understand. It's like, oh, we're laughing and having a great time. So clearly it must, must be showing up on screen. And no, a lot of times the movies that are the most fun to make all end up being absolutely unwatchable to, the to people who weren't there. Because the funny stuff was on the set, not in front of the camera on screen. But I don't know. That's, that's a whole topic in and of itself. Um... And I think it also comes down to like so much of comedy is now improvisational that so much that now that there's even less writing. And so everyone's trying to be the trying to be their own writer and be funny. And it's like, uh, uh. so, yeah, um, it's not a bad cast either. John Leguizamo, uh, Keegan-Michael Key, uh, Judy Greer is the love interest in here. But once again, it's just there's nothing there. It's like all wackity schmackity do and whatnot and stupid kids and like, oh, gee willikers, how are these big tough manly men gonna handle these three little kids? And oh my goodness, grown men watching My Little Pony? Me, me, me. As a grown man who watches My Little Pony, this, this movie does not represent me. I know more about My Little Pony than John Linguizamo did in this movie. I'm just saying. But, um... Yeah, not to mention the fact that it's, you know, it, there's extend, there's a whole extended poop joke. So that's, that's what they're saying is the audience for this movie. If you're into, like, a 10-minute long poop joke, this is the movie for you. Everything, because, like, if you're here for anything unique or interesting or fun, you know, out, that's something that's trying something new and not just recycling all the old kids' movie tropes just now with John Cena and firefighting, then 
you came to the wrong movie because this is absolutely predictable the moment you figure out what the actual plot is. Once they reveal what's going on with the kids, you know exactly what's going to happen by the end. <sighs> also, there's a there's this weird subplot of, like, Alexa being a thing in the movie. So, like, there's this weird product placement. It's like, oh, dumb kids, they are so reliant on technology. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it ends with a bit. It just all reeks of product placement. And it's just like, ugh. So, yeah, playing with fire, it's... <laughs> the only one playing with fire is going to be you if you buy a ticket. <laughs> Ugh. At any rate, uh, that catches me up on all the new releases. So now it's just a matter of waiting for things, to, new things to come out and checking out stuff on uh, Netflix. I do need to check out The Irishman. I've been hearing people go off and on about it. Apparently some of the people who are blasting it for being too long and not having enough women are also the people who are complaining that Martin Scorsese doesn't like their cape and costume crowd. Um, as though, like, Martin Scorsese was ever going to give a shit about Marvel superheroes. Like, oh no, what? how, how come Martin Scorsese, the, uh, you know, dramatic filmmaker, doesn't care much about blockbuster movies? Ooh, blah, blah, blah. Man, like, come on. This is a dude who didn't make a kid's movie until, tw until like, 40, 50 years into his career. Like, this is a this is a guy who makes movies for a certain crowd. You know, people his own age. He's not really concerned with making stuff for, gen for like, general audiences and especially, like, things with kids. The only reason he made Hugo was because he finally wanted to make something for his kids to watch. Because, like, they can't watch Goodfellas and Casino. Um, so, yeah, I don't care that Martin Scorsese doesn't like Marvel movies. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need to. It was not his thing. We, I grew up with Marvel stuff in my media. He obviously did not, so it's not like a nostalgia thing for him either. So, like, who cares that he's not into comic book and comic book movies? Who cares? And I think that's the other thing is, like, part of that whole debacle is um, they're trying to, like, do gotcha questions to old filmmakers. Like, oh, how come this guy who was making movies before most of us were born doesn't like the new hotness. You know, it's like saying, oh, how come uh, Johnny Cash isn't into BTS? You know, if Johnny Cash was still alive and asking him about BTS, and he's like, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not really into it. And it's like, oh, he doesn't like the new hotness. So McGurd. And it's like, no, of course not. Why, but why, why are you asking these questions? It doesn't matter. Like, his biggest criticism was more about the corporatization of Hollywood and the dying of ind independent filmmaking and the fact that it's harder to make mid-level movies and it's always big movies or no-budget movies. And it's like, yes, that's a real problem. And no, everyone's concerned that, oh my god, he doesn't like Avengers? How dare he not like my Captain America's sweet buns? Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, but then, once again, uh, the corporate-driven... Entertainment news media has a vested interest to keep the things that he's talking about from being the topic. So it be, so the topic then, you know, the headline becomes Martin Scorsese doesn't like that thing you love and not Martin Scorsese decries the corporatization of Hollywood and the dying of the filmmaking industry. Uh, Jesus. All right. Like I went off on a tangent. Um, uh, before I uh, end the episode, I do want to kind of pose a question to anybody who's out there listening. Uh, if you are listening, I have a couple of things uh, I would like to hear from you. So I am asking for some level of audience participation. I know. <laughs> I, I know. It's it's kind of... It's, it's, it's kind of for my own sake because I'd like to do something for the people that are listening so that they have... Um, so that I can give something to you guys. Uh, and y'all, to the, a, a lot of you, and basically what I want to know is, as I'm compiling the best and worst, uh, le favorite, least favorite, to be technical, movies of the year, I want to know, did you, pref did you prefer my top sevens that I did start, that I did, that, that I've been doing, or would you prefer me to do a full top ten? For the decade, I am doing a top ten, because ten years, ten entries, Duh. But for end of the year lists, would you prefer me to do a full top 10 for li favorite, least favorite, and blandest? 
or do you want me to keep going with the top seven? Do you have a preference? Do you think do you like the top seven? Do you think it's you know something like I did where it's just like other than the norm, no normal top five, top ten, or would you prefer the traditional top ten? Um, like I like I've done I went back and rewatched my old uh, solitary nerd reviews end of the year stuff, and yeah, there's a, there's this definite like you know the fact that it's top ten. 10 is a very, you know, powerful number. You know, people, it's, you know, the the roundness, the the first of the double digits, the fact that it's the 10. I get that. So if you prefer a top 10, I need to know sooner rather than later. Uh, so hit me up on social media. Uh, comment on the Facebook uh, post for this uh for this episode or tweet hit me up on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. Let me know if you would prefer top tens for the end of the year list starting with 2019. And then um you know otherwise uh you know if you if you would actually prefer me to keep doing the top sevens, I will. I have that already set up, but if you want me to add more now, I need to know before we get into the end of the year. And then the other thing was what would you like me to do with this show? Because I had so many segments that I threw in that just made this an unwieldy mess. And I would much rather add only the segments that are interest y'all. So do you want me to do trailer talk previews of the next weekend? Um, I won't do a, a, a long-form discussion. That'll be its own thing for, for Patreon. Um, do you want me to cover the box office at all? Do you have any interest in the box office? And then, you know... If y'all would want me to do uh, Patreon-level requests for stuff to watch that is outside of the new releases, you know, that is that is still on the table. I still have stuff for Patreon Corner that I wanted to cover. That I, you know, I still have the bumper for that. So um, I'm not going to force you to, to sign up for the Patreon if you don't want to. But what segments... would Is there a segment you have in mind that you would want me to cover in terms of film that... This isn't normally covered by film podcasts. You know, is there something... Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, is there... What would you want out of this show that you're not getting from other podcasts? Audience feedback. I still want to do an audience feedback segment as well. Hear, hear, hear your thoughts on the movies. So definitely... Um, so definitely, like, you know, hit me up on Twitter and send in the emails for that sort of thing. But... um yeah, I, I'm trying to get some more engagement out of this so that it's a back and forth. Because I'd like that more than just me talking into the void. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's <laughs> that's your homework for this week, folks. <laughs> um, and yeah, if you hit me up on Twitter and whatnot with what you thought of the, of the movies I talked about. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Um, and what kind of stuff would you like to see from the show? You know, send all that, you know, specifically if you would prefer 10s or sevens for the final end of the year list. Um, that one I need to know sooner rather than later. The other stuff we can get as we're going along. But for right now, that about does it for this week. Um, so that means it is time for the plugs. I almost just said goodbye and forgot the plugs. Uh, if you're listening to this show, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker and favoriting us on your web browser. And that way you can keep up to date on all the new shows. And then also check out our other fine programs like um, Living in the Stacks. We got our episode recorded for this coming for the month, and that should be coming out uh, the 15th. We've also got the newly premiered uh, Dungeons & Dragon Types. Where I DM Pokemon 5th Edition. Uh, we also got Beyond the Cabin in the Woods. Once More with Feeling. The Family Business. All of Donna's stuff with the Snarkast. And if you yourself are a podcaster and would like to join our fledgling little family, uh, you can send any inquiries to uh, GummyCatNetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. Uh, if you're listening to us on the go, you can find us on all of your various podcast providers. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Uh, and whatever your whatever your provider is, uh, be sure to leave a five star rating and review. Let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. You can also share us on your various social media. Our social media home is uh, facebook.com slash popcorn junkie, Twitter at corn junkie pod, Instagram at popcorn junkie podcast. 
And, um, yeah. And then if there's anything you want to say to me, feedback you want to give, uh, thoughts on the movies I reviewed. Once again, if there's ideas that you would like to hear uh, from this podcast, like segments that you think would work, uh, send all that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want me to read it out on the air, let me know in the subject or message. Otherwise, I'll just paraphrase. So that does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and it feels good to be back, y'all. It's, I'm getting back in the swing. John's getting his groove back. Never saw that movie. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.tvandarts.com for more of his artwork. Mm-hmm.